0: The following is a message from Pastor Kelly Hewitt and Live It, a ministry of St. Marcus. For more information or for message notes, go to www.liveitmke.org. Tonight we have the opportunity to continue with our current series, With. We're taking a look at Jesus spending time with various people throughout his ministry here on earth. We all know a lot of the big stories, feeding of the 5,000, where he was with a lot of people, where he was in front of the masses. Jesus is the Savior of the world, and he, in these stories we're taking a look at, these accounts as we look at With, we see him spending time in ordinary situations with ordinary people, the king of the universe, walking and talking with people just like you and me, dealing with issues that you and I struggle with. And that's where our series is going. And and tonight, we're continuing on. So far, we've met a student who is a skeptical student, a really brilliant guy who was kind of skeptical that the Savior could come from a little town called Nazareth. We've also met a bride and a groom who royally misplanned their wedding, and Jesus stepped in with his mother's encouragement. Last week, we met a guy by the name of Nicodemus. First fill-in-the-blank. We like to do fill-in-the-blanks. I like to have you doodle or keep you, yourselves engaged. So first fill-in-blank tonight is Nicodemus was a fill-in-the-blank for me. What was his role? I hear a tax collector as an answer. What else? What else? Pharisee. So we'll come back to tax collector in a little while. We will have one of those. So this week we're taking a look at Nicodemus. We saw this guy last week. He was a Pharisee. Pharisees were the people who They were the most religious people. You want to talk about what you'd set up as that is the quintessential Christian or what people would say from an outward sense. This is what a quintessential good religious person would be. They would tithe. They would go to church. They would do all the sacrifices. They would pray at the right times during the day. They'd wear the right clothes. He was everything that a good Hebrew Jew should be. Except for Jesus talking with him said, Hey Nicodemus, it's not all about what you do, it's about me. And we saw how Jesus used this passage that we all know so well, John 3:16, to lay out before Nicodemus his mission and his purpose to save the world. It's not by happenstance, it's not by chance, that John uses the story of Nicodemus back to back with the story of. Of the outcast woman. The woman we're going to take a look at tonight goes by many names. She goes by an outcast, a sinful woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, and there are a number of other names that we can't use due to the children being present, but she she lived an illicit lifestyle. Let's just put it that way. Um, And that's the story we're going into, and there's no There's there's a reason why Jesus has these two, two stories side by side. Two people that you would run into in everyday life. The person who looks all religious and doesn't get it, and the person whose life is so full of sin that they're not sure they could walk through the doors of a church because they're sure that nobody would ever understand their situation. And so let's jump in tonight. Tonight we're looking at the outcast woman. I'm going to put it up there. At the beginning of John, John chapter four. If you want to open up in your Bibles or in your um, online devices, your mobile devices, John chapter four, you'll realize that we're jumping in a couple verses in because the first few verses lay out the fact that Jesus was becoming so popular that the Pharisees didn't like him, that the Pharisees had issues with him, and they were going to drive him out of town anyways. So Jesus says, "Guess what? I'm going to head out of Dodge anyways." And he heads north, and so it says, "So now he had to go through Samaria." There are three ways that you can get from Jerusalem to Galilee. The first route, which is the most common route, is about 90 miles, and you head across the Jordan, and you go up the Jordan, right along the Jordan River, and then you cross back over. It's about 90 miles, takes you significantly out of your way by probably 30 miles, adds at least two to three days to your journey, but that way you can ensure that you don't walk through that land. The second way you can go is you can go over to the sea, cross some mountains, walk along the water, cross the mountains, and come back in. That one, too, adds 30 to 40 miles to your journey. The most direct route would be for those of you who live in Tosa driving right down North Avenue. So this is your equivalency. It's either driving from Tosa right down North Avenue, going over and getting on like Greenfield, or going up to Silver Spring. That's about the equivalency of that you're looking at. And you get to drive right down North Avenue, and many of you know there are sections of North Avenue, that as you look on either side, you lock your doors and you go, this is a land that I'm not sure I want to be in. That's the way Jews treated Samaria. Because they were those people. Outsiders. Some of them were mixed religion. Some of them had started mixing Judaism with the Canaan gods and had a, a, a weird mix of the two. Some of them were just completely Canaanite and pagan. Some of them had heritages that they kind of remember what Judaism was, but they're not quite sure. But anyways, those from the land of Samaria would rarely go to Jerusalem. They wouldn't cross the borders. It was a cultural no-man's zone. And Jews, only when absolutely necessary, would cross through Samaria. That's still true today. When I traveled Israel, that's still true because the area that was Samaria is now under Palestinian liberation authority. So now it's under Palestinian control. So it's still today, the same problem that Jesus and his disciples had is still going on in Israel today. Only difference is, it's instead of Samaritans, it's called Palestinians. And you still can take the trek, but t- traditional Israelis do not. And so that's what's going on. Jesus says, I have to go through this lo- This area. And so he heads through Samaria, ends up near a town named Sakar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. It's about noon. So he's been probably walking for 10 to 15 miles. Depending on which part of the year it is, it's probably about 100 degrees, if not 110. It is a dry heat because it is the, the Middle East, but still... Try hiking at 100, 110 degree heat, and Samaria was very hilly. So if any of you have ever hiked any of the mountains outside of Phoenix, Arizona, if you've done Camelback, Superstition, or any of the mountains outside Phoenix, that's very much the similar terrain that you would be walking across in Israel. Very similar, very dry. So he's tired. So I want you to circle that. He's tired. It's very important. You see, Jesus is dealing with human emotions and things just like we deal with them. He's tired from hiking. He's tired from this journey. He's worn out. And so he sends his disciples into town. He he takes the load off. He sits at the well, sends his disciples into town. He had an appointment he had to keep. He had an appointment that he had to keep, and he needed his disciples to not be present. Sends them into town. When a Samaritan woman came to to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? A couple of social norms are being broken. Jesus crosses boundaries to spend time to be with this woman. So first boundary is race or what you'll call culture. He spoke to a Samaritan would not have taken place normally. Second one is he speaks to a woman who is at a well alone that would have been a taboo topic single males males do not speak to single women it would have been a cultural taboo you just don't do it it's inappropriate you speak to a female when a male is present that's just part of their culture still is that way today in many um muslim or arab towns and so you have her also as an outcast and we're going to find out in a few minutes why she's an outcast So he's crossed a bunch of these boundaries, and now he crosses also the ultimate boundary. She is an outcast. She is a sexual outcast because she's had five husbands and is now sleeping with a man who is not her husband. So he is now essentially talking to a prostitute or someone who is known for their illicit sex life. So you want to talk about all the boundaries that could be crossed. Jesus enters into what would normally be considered a dangerous situation for any guy in this time frame. But he knows he needs to spend some time with her. And he says, I need to be with you. I need to talk with you. And what's the first qu- thing he says to her? What's the first thing he says? Give me a drink. It's the only question up there. Give me a drink. It's the only part that's on the screen right now. Jesus does a lot of talking. You will see it in, our, in the passages. But he says, give me a drink. So Jesus, who is the Savior of the world who is tired from his journey, who's thirsty, who shouldn't be talking to this Samaritan woman who is known for her illicit sex life, says, I need something from you. That's not what you expect of the Savior of the world. You expect the Savior to say, I have something for you. Not to say, I need something from you. But he knows this conversation. He knows what she needs. And he knows how to go about this conversation with her. So this is where we are. Jesus crosses all boundaries to be with this woman, to be in a conversation with her to be able to convey to her a message that she desperately needs to hear in a contextual way that she will understand it. So here we go. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus, just like Nicodemus, if you remember last week, Jesus launched into a dialogue that Nicodemus would understand but didn't grasp. He told Nicodemus, you need to be reborn. A very very deep conversation that he knew he could have with Nicodemus. With this woman, he launches into a dialogue that he knows she will understand. He knows that she understands that she has a deep need for water. How many, what's the percentage of our bodies that's water? What is it? I'm hearing murmurs. Somebody shout it out. 70? Higher? Lower? Where's our medical people? Where are all the medical people? Nobody wants to speak up. Higher. Upper 70s, we'll just call it upper 70, percent of our bodies made up of water. You realize you can last for over 10 days without food. You can't last for more than two and a half days without water. You'll you'll dehydrate and die. Do you realize how much water you go through in a morning? Average length of a shower is 10 to 15 minutes. The average showerhead dispenses three to five gallons of water per minute. How many gallons of water do you go through? This sounds like a third-grade math problem, right? (laughs) Talking about 30 to 40 gallons of water, depending on how long your shower is, that you go through in the morning. You have to realize, in her day, they would go through that throughout the entirety of a week. Your average bathtub holds 40 to 50 gallons. Think about the amount of water you waste every day. They live in a desert, and every ounce of water has to come up by one to two-gallon increments how much water would you use if you had to pull all of the water you used by one or two gallon increments? Would your water consumption go up or down? Significantly down, right? So she understood what it is that they had to have this water. And guess what? If you had water sitting in your house, it would go stagnant. They don't have those nice water bottles with nice airtight seals that keep bacteria out. If you had water that was open, bacteria would get in it and it would make you sick. So you couldn't just go draw for one week and then go back and get more. You'd have to draw every day. And so she understood that this was a part of her habitual habit that she had to have water for everything she did. And now Jesus is telling her flat out, I have water so you don't have to do this every day. And so how does she respond? I want it. Give it to me. How do I get this? You've just told me you have the miracle. If you've ever traveled to a third world country where you don't turn a faucet on, you have a brief little minute understanding of what she just said. Give it to me. I want that. I need that. But just like Nicodemus, who didn't quite grasp Jesus' question, she doesn't quite get the depth that Jesus is going to. She gets that she needs water, that she needs to drink. But Jesus has another point. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give in him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't be thir- get thirsty and have to keep coming to draw water. Give me it. I want it. I want that. Give it to me. I want it now. But what she doesn't quite grasp at this point is that he is speaking to her life in a way that she, that, that she doesn't want to grasp yet. You see, she's trying to fulfill an inner thirst with outside means. So she's trying to fu- nothing outside of you can satisfy your inner thirst. You see, her inner thirst was for relationships. Her inner thirst was so that she would always be with a man. Her identity was that she was with a man and that she was enjoying marital relations, that she was enjoying sex. Those were the things that were her outward Thirst. She had this deep need within her that she knew she needed a savior. She had this deep need within her that she felt this void. And so to fill that void, she filled it with relationships and sex. And Jesus is filling her in on this. Do you realize, woman, a part of you being a woman in today's day is that every morning you come and draw water, but because you're an outcast, you can't come in the morning when it's nice and cool. You have to haul water at the heat of the day because you're trying to fulfill an inner urge. With an outward action. How many of us do that? How many of us are trying to fulfill this inner thirst within us, this inner desire, this void within our lives, with outward things? We bounce from relationship to relationship to relationship because we feel that we're not complete without it. We have an identity crisis. We feel that we have to work X number of hours and, and where our identity is in our employment. Or our identity is found that we we, we don't know what our identity is, and we have this void, and so we get drawn into addictions. And we try to fulfill this, satisfy this outward, or this inner thirst with outward desires. That's what Jesus is talking about right here. Is your identity in him where you have this inner thirst being fulfilled so that your entire identity overflows with knowing him? Or is your identity right now through who you perceive and give off the persona you are? So how does he go on? Go ahead one more. I doubled up, sorry. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. She says, I want this. I want to have this identity within me. I want this whole plug. I get that. And so Jesus does what Jesus is so great at. He knows her entire situation right now. He knows her sleeping arrangements. And he doesn't say, I'm sorry, I can't fulfill that part of, I, I, can't, I can't take care of this right now because you're filling this in a bad way. He lays it up there in a way that allows her to confess a sin before he condemns her for it. And he says, go get your husband. He could have just said, I'm sorry, this water isn't for you because you're a sinner who's sleeping with people. But he says, go get your husband. And he gives her the opportunity to confess. And that's exactly what she does. I don't have a husband. She's not entirely forthwith. But she does admit, I don't have a husband. And so he answers, you're right in saying you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you you now have is not your husband. So at this point in the conversation, what would you think your personal reaction would be to Jesus confronting you on what you're fulfilling your your desires with? If he picked that pet sin that you're struggling with and he had this conversation with you, how do you think you'd respond? Are you going to say, okay, Jesus? You've just met him, and he just told you your deepest, darkest secret, the thing you've been struggling with. And she confesses. You're right. I've been dealing with that. How'd you know that? But she doesn't ask. She knows it. She knows why he knows it. She says, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. You're right. I know I've sinned, I know I have failed. And I can see you have knowledge that is beyond that of just a teacher. Her next response is taken one of two ways. Many people see her next comment, as you read it on the screen there, as her trying to change the subject. Right? Well, he's just confronted me on my sin. Let me get on a worship war. If there's one thing Jews and Samaritans will argue about, it's where to worship. The other way that you can read this, and as you read through her the account... It really becomes a very apparent. Her question as she says, where do I go? You guys, you guys say you have to go to Jerusalem. The, the Samaritans say worship in, in Gerizim, which is where they had their temple. Her question is, how do I fix it? How do I go about fixing this? Jesus confronts her with her sin and she's not abhorrent. She's not in his face. Her question is, where do I go to confess and make this right? Do I go to Gerizim or do I go to... Jerusalem where do i go so that god is okay with me where do i go so that i can get this inner water you've now hit on what i need fixed because i i want my soul filled i want this well to spring up within me so that i'm not always searching for the next thing i want to be complete uh, i want to be content and happy with where i'm at so often in our lives we're not content we're having this question of What's the next thing? I want to be in a relationship. As soon as you're in a relationship, I want to be engaged. As soon as I'm I'm engaged, oh, well, when are we getting married? As soon as you're married, the question is, are we buying a house? And once you have the house, are we having kids? As soon as you have kids, when's the next kid? And it becomes, I'm never happy until the next phase. And so what she's saying here as you see her lay this out is, I want to be complete, Jesus. And here's how he responds. Believe me, woman. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain, meaning Gerizim, where they were, or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. He's letting on. You guys have a piece of the truth, but you're missing a huge chunk of it. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks." God is spirit. His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. This is the picture of where we are today. It doesn't matter what building you're in. The question is, do you believe that Jesus is your Savior? And that's where he goes with this. Go ahead. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain it to us. So even though she grew up in a place that didn't quite have all the pieces right, she knew that she should be looking for the Messiah the Old Testament Christ who was promised, who would come to die and to forgive sins, and she knew she was supposed to be looking for him. She knew that when this guy finally comes, he's going to free her from her sins. So she's like, I don't know which mountain, but I know I'm supposed to be looking for this guy who's going to save me. And here is a fantastic statement. Then Jesus declared, I am he who speaks with you. I am he who speaks with you. I rarely try to take on the NIV Bible and say they got a translation somewhat wrong. They are a lot smarter than I am. One of their translators is the great is the father of Pastor Jesky who just passed away and he was a very brilliant man. I don't say I'm smarter than him. But this is one of the places where even he will say this the NIV got it wrong. Because in the NIV it says who I who speak to you am he. If you read through John, John has these statements which say, "I am," where Jesus claims to be the Old Testament LORD, where you see a caps lock, the Yahweh, Jehovah God, the God who is all-merciful and powerful. And throughout the book of John, John uses these words from Jesus to, to link Jesus to being the Messiah who was promised. And this is one of those places where if you look at it, it fits perfectly, even though they translated it a little different. And that is the beautiful context. She says, I know I've confessed. How do I fix it? He says, there's going to be a time when you don't need to go to one, either of these two places. You believe in the Savior who is coming and he will forgive you your sins. And, it, and she goes, I know I'm looking for him. Where is he? When he comes, he'll let me know. And his next response is, I'm the one who's forgiving your sins. You see, Jesus spends time with this woman so that he can reveal to her that he is the one who forgives her sins. The person who is what we would consider this despicable sinner, he doesn't make her go through all of these hoops to be forgiven. She says, I know I've screwed up and I'm waiting for the Messiah to forgive me and he says, I forgive you. I'm right here. I don't hold your past against you. I know your entire past, and I've died for your past, and I give you a new life in me." And it would be great if the story ended here, that she got this great realization. But the next part is kind of like watching the person who just won the lottery. Then leaving her water jar, you have this picture. She just finds out, he says, I'm the Messiah, I forgive you your sins she drops the water can that she came out here with and she runs to town and tells everybody, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Now, how many of you want to run around telling people, hey, come and see the Savior who called me out on sleeping around, called me out on my sex life, called me out on how I was wrong in all these things? We don't want to confess that outwardly, right? Those are, come and see the Savior who forgives other people. But her story was, come and see how he knew everything I did and how he forgave even me. You all know me as the outcast. You all know me as the sinner. Come and see the guy who says, I'm forgiven. He is the Christ. And they came out. And they all made their way out. So the disciples are in town buying food while this all takes place. So they're on their way back out. She runs into town. And as the disciples are coming out, all these other people join with. If you go through the text, you'll read how this is happening. And they start asking, why is he talking to her and all these things? And then you end the story with this. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Many believed because of whose testimony? Whose testimony? This is a softball. You answer easily. The woman's. I'm trying to give you some easy answers here. They come running out and they believe because of the woman's testimony, her testimony about the Savior. I want you to notice that because so often in life we think it's somebody else's job. And here you see the response to Jesus saying, I forgive you your sins. And the next thing is, I want others to know so that they can know, so that they can know Jesus for themselves, so that they can come and spend time with him as well. And so when, they came, when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. So there's a certain group who became, became believers just because the woman told them. There's another group who came and found out because they came to see Jesus. And they, know, and they said to the woman. Now, this is their response. They heard her and said, this woman's on something, but we'll listen to her and come listen anyways. Something that's gotten her so moved, so passionate, has changed her so much, we have to come listen. Listen. And this is how they responded. We no longer believe just because of what you said. But because of what you said, now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. You see, part of our job as being forgiven children, part of our role is that in joy of him forgiving our sins is that we share that with others is that we share him and and, and others begin to hear of him through our testimony. And you may feel sometimes like they're not listening. You have that friend who you've been trying to share, whose life has been struggling and you've been trying to remind them, hey, perhaps you should spend some time with Jesus. Perhaps maybe you should talk with him. Maybe I'll help you with that. And they're like, no, not for me. And you keep talking with them about it. And finally they start getting it. And finally you bring them with you to hear him. And finally, their comment is, I no longer believe just because you brought me, but because I've spent so much time listening. He's been speaking to me as well. Jesus spends time with sinners and reveals he's the Savior. It's such a simple message. We're broken. We try to struggle against him. And he says, here am I. I've walked, I've lived perfectly for you. I forgive you. Now live for me. Such a simple answer, right? And you go back to that opening question that he basically dealt with the woman on. is Nothing outside of you can satisfy your inner thirst. And now you begin seeing this woman's inner thirst fulfilled and how she now has water to share with others. And that's the picture that you have for yourself. Are you fill, being, is your inner thirst being filled by Jesus? Or is your inner thirst being filled by all these outside things? If you're struggling with the outside things right now, tonight I'm going to encourage you to lay it all before him and come forward, receive his supper, receive the forgiveness of your sins so that you can walk forth from here tonight forgiven and being filled with the Savior who's died for you who's giving you the ability just to live every moment of every day for him. Amen.